The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Alrighty, here on Wednesday nights, we've been studying through the book of Revelation here recently, and um, we have... uh, uh, study the first few chapters already, and now our studies through the book of Revelation brings us to an important segment that will begin and uh, kind of cap off our study tonight, As of course. But before we begin with this new section and uh, start to try to get into things here this evening as we make our way uh, through the rest of the book of Revelation, I want to remind you before we do about the outline that was found in Revelation chapter number one. And so, Brother John, we're going to have several slides tonight. I'm just going to give you cues and... and uh, uh, and I'll do my best to remember to do that as well so that he keeps up with all that is going on. But of course, chapter 1, verse number 19 uh, talk, gives us an outline or how Jesus said to John how he was to kind of uh, write what he was to write about. And so point one on the outline, of course, included those things that he saw and that involves that of chapter number one. And then the things that uh, are were that of chapter two and uh, chapter number three. And then thirdly, John was to write the things that must happen after these things. And so it's a future tense, a, a prophetic uh, sense that is going to be taking place. And that picks up in chapter number four and onward. And uh, so far, we have studied part one, uh, which was the authentication of the book. That was found in chapter one, where uh, John writes about getting this information from Jesus and the interaction he had as he was there on the Isle of Patmos, and he heard the voice that sounded like a trumpet, turned and saw Jesus in the midst of the golden candlesticks. And then we've also looked at part number two, uh, which was the history of the church age, which was founded by the letters uh, to the churches there in chapter two and chapter three. And so give me that next slide, if you would. Brother John, and uh, that was uh, what we looked at over the last several weeks. And uh, so, beginning with Ephesus, that is the uh, uh, Apostolic Church, and then, of course, uh, uh, then the persecuted church, the Roman Empire Church, Roman Catholic Church, Reformation Church, Missionary Church, and then the Apostate Church, as we discussed even last week. Each of the seven letters represent a period of time uh, that uh, relates to uh, the time of the church uh, here on this earth. And uh, each description, though, as we saw, was quite brief, wasn't it? I mean, when we consider uh, the fact that seven letters make up two chapters out of this entire book and two chapters out of the entire Bible, and when we consider the importance of them and all that they try to detail, it, we find that the, the description is so brief that we can't po- it can't possibly give us enough information to act on alone. And so, therefore, uh, the church uh, it, it would, would not be able to appreciate uh, everything that is being said there and all that it would off, honestly um, uh, relate to. And so therefore, for roughly 2,000 years or so, the prophetic meanings of those letters went kind of unnoticed or unlearned. And uh, so why did, if that's the case, why did Jesus give the church this prophetic roadmap in chapter 2 and chapter 3 with these seven letters if the churches in 95 AD didn't pick up on it right off the bat? Well, the answer, I believe, is this, that the letters weren't given so that the early church could know their future, but rather that the letters were given in the prophetic sense so that the church of the latter day might be able to see where they're at and to recognize the severity and the closeness of the times that they're in. 
So those that will be alive right before the events that will start to unfold and we'll learn about through chapters 4 through 22, they would be able to recognize the significance of the days that they're living in. My friends, do you, do you not see how the scripture says that in the last days, perilous times shall come, there'll be wars and rumors of wars, but we'll see in just a moment that even in the first century, Christians were saying, oh, we're in the last days. But my friends, we see how all this starts to unfold. And as we notice that each letter of the seven letters represents a different time frame in the church's history, it was evident through our studies of it that we're in the last of those times. So while James, we'll talk about him in just a minute, and the writer of Hebrews, we'll talk about him in just a minute, they were living in the last days, yes, we could say that we're in the last days of the last days, no doubt. We're in the final period, of, at least, of the church, uh, church age, as we can see that unfolding easily. But in order for us to be able to understand all the signs of the times and to be ready for them and to fulfill that mission, we must understand not only our present circumstances, but we also need to understand our history as well. We need to be able to go back and consider uh, what has already taken place. Specifically, we must take our understanding of the church and its seven periods of existence and place it into a larger framework, if you may. The church comes into existence at a certain point in history, and it will have a certain course, and it will have an appointed end as well, yes. And of, a, of course, our desire is to know what comes next. And so give me the next slide, Brother John. We, we understand that. And the outline of Revelation tells us more is coming after the church. And so chapter 1, John was to write about the things he saw. That was taking place uh, there in that first church age the, uh, when, when John was alive. But he wrote about the things that are. That includes the entirety of church history from the first century all the way to where we're living today as well, as it's encapsulated by those seven letters. But there is going to be something that comes hereafter. That's what we're going to get to when we get into chapter 4, and as we continue on all the way through chapter number 2, or 22, I'm sorry. But first, we've got to understand what came before the church. If we're to ever understand how the church concludes this period that goes into the final days. Have I lost you, yet? lost you yet? So what I'm saying tonight is because the events that lead to the start of the church, they also ex help explain what comes after. So we can understand that those letters, uh, they, they are a picture of the different times of history of the church's existence from the first century to even where we live today. But the events that led into the church's existence also help us to understand the events that will bring in the, the time that comes after the church's existence as well. And so to answer those questions, guess what? We've actually got to venture outside of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation gives us insight to know these things, but we've got to go somewhere else in Scripture to figure it out. And to begin with that understanding, there's two important terms that I think we need to come to grips with before we can ever move on. And if you were here when we went through the book of Daniel, you'll probably remember some of this, and that's okay, because some of this stuff that we've gone over already is, is, is so detailed that it's not always easy to grasp it the very first time we've gone through it. 
If you weren't here, though, while we were going through Daniel, this will help serve as a, as a foundation for you to be able to uh, understand what we're going to get into as we move on. The first term that we need to come to grips with is the term that I'll use is the term age. And so give me the next slide there, if you would. And we're gonna, the two terms are ages and last days. Well, an age, or that word aeon, is um, a long but finite time in God's program of history, all right? So an age, it's a long time, period of years, if not decades, if not longer, yes, but it's, it is a long time, but it is a finite time. It has a beginning and it has a ending as well. And it's all part of God's program of history, all right? So we're going to talk about that and uh, make sure we all understand that, uh, have an understanding of that before we move on as well. We can see how ages follow one another by Jesus' words in Mark 10. If you want to take your Bibles and go there first and, and notice Mark 10, verses 29 through 30. Mark 10, verses 29 through 30, it says, And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now at this time. All right? That word time there would have the same meaning as age. And he says, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in, notice the next phrase, in the world to come eternal life. That same word, that word, that word world right there is the same word aeon, which we get our word age. And so instead of talk, getting confused by using the term world, when we think world, we're gonna, we would think maybe earth and Mars and Venus and Jupiter and so on. So instead of getting confused by using that word world, we're going to use the word age, okay? And that's what Jesus speaks of here. He says that we live in one age now. And there will be an age to come. The age to come is that age where we are experiencing eternal life. We have eternal life if we're saved. We, we have it. We own it. But we're not experiencing it yet because we will die unless the Lord comes back. But when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then we will have total control or total experience of eternal life. So eternal life is ours. Yes, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we don't have eternal life, but I am simply saying we've not experienced eternal life yet because this physical body will die. And so we understand that to be true. And Jesus is saying that we live in one age now, an age that is physical. And there will be an age that we'll experience later for the saved, eternal life, where we'll have glorified bodies. So the ending of our current age, guess what? Leads to the beginning of a new one. Are you following along? So as you see up there, we're in this time or a, a current age right now. And using the words of Jesus there from, from Mark chapter 10, there will be another age or a world to come. And so we're in one age. And when that age ends, it begins a new one. The age that we're in right now had an age that led into it as well. That age came to an end, and now the age that we're in had a beginning also. So the, the, the term age, what is it? It's a long but finite period of time in God's plan, in His, in his program. The second term, as you see on the screen there, is the term last days. Give me the next one, Brother John, if you would. 
And uh, the, word, the phrase last days is a final period of an age signaling the approach of the next age, all right? And so the Bible uses this term, the last days, and the last days refers to that final period where it signals the approach of a next one. You could kind of think of it like the two-minute warning in a football game. You could kind of think of it uh, in, in that terms that, okay, at the end of the fourth quarter uh, of the football game, when they reach within two minutes, when play stops, there's an automatic timeout. That two-minute warning signifies that they're reaching the end of that period, the end of that quarter. And so while the two-minute warning has a specific allotment of time, it is not infinite, it is not a long period of time, we could consider the last days as almost like a two-minute warning. Now, last days could go on for a rather lengthy bit of time. In fact, we'll see that in just a minute. Uh, but we understand that the Bible tells us in James chapter 5 and verse number 3, your gold and silver is uh, cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and ye shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Uh, ye have heaped treasure together, notice what he says, for the last days. In Hebrews 1 and verses 1 through 2, he says this, God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto you by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So the last days are the culminating period of an age. Yet James told us here that the church of the first century was in the last days. The writer of Hebrews said that, the, that God had once spoke at one, in one way, but in these last days, he's speaking in another way. So the writer of Hebrews is saying at that time, they were in the last days as well. So since we know that it's been about 2,000 years or so since these letters were written, clearly it tells us that last days can last quite a while. Now, so what makes them the last days though? Well, according to Hebrews, the last days are when all of Revelation is complete, meaning that the Word of God, His, spoke, His written Word, has come to an end. There's no more divine revelation, and there's no more mile markers remaining. Hebrews says that, uh, uh, that in the past, the Lord provided revelation or insight in bits and pieces. And so, so uh, as long as there was revelation to be given, as long as there was instruction to be given or written down, then they weren't in the last days. But when, there, when it was completed, when it was finalized, then we can tell that we, were, we are living in the last days. My friends, the Lord doesn't speak through visions and dreams in the ways that He did to the Old Testament prophets and such, but He has given us His Word. And it's complete, and it's closed. The canon is closed. And therefore, we see that that means we are in the last days. Most importantly, though... Uh, the Messiah had to be revealed because it said Jesus would speak in those ways in the last days. Thankfully, I'm thankful this evening that Christ has come and he's already ascended to the right hand of his father as well because his appearing was the focus of the age and the culminating event as well. So to give me the next slide, or you got the next slide up there. And so we find here that the writer said how that Jesus has appeared and the canon of scripture is complete that the stage is set now for the end to come. That means this, my friends, that there is nothing that has to happen before the Lord could come back. There is nothing that has to happen 
before this age comes to a close and he's, he's, he's returned. So we find here, my friends, that our age can conclude without further warning and at any time. But even still, the last days run for, a, for an unknown period of time, which we know has already been 2,000 years and it's counting still. But knowing how ages and last days work in Scripture, then it naturally brings us some other questions as well. Questions like this. What is this age that we're currently in? Uh, when did it begin? Does it have a name that we can call it? What is the purpose of this age? When does this age end? And what will come next? Well, guess what? The Bible has the answer to every one of those questions. Aren't you glad for that? The only problem is, is all the answers to those questions are in the book of Revelation alone. But we can't grasp the truths of Revelation until we grasp the truths that are found elsewhere in the Bible as well that relate to this as also. So Revelation 4 through Revelation 22 tells the story how this age gives way to the next, yes, but we need to find out all the information about the age we're in, how it came to be, and what will ultimately bring it to its, to its end before we can ever get a good foundation as to what it means for the next one to begin. Jesus gives us an answer to one of these questions about what this age is called in Luke 21 in verse number 24. In Luke 21 and verse number 24, he says, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until, notice what he says, the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That word times is the same meaning as ages. So what age are we currently in? We are in the times or the age of the Gentiles. And Jesus gives us some information to say how we can know specifically that we are currently in this age. What does this age entail? Well, we read it in the scripture, but on the screen you notice that the Jew, Jewish people will suffer death, enslavement, and persecution. That's one sign that we're currently still in the age. And the second sign is the fact that Jerusalem will be defiled and under Gentile control. Now, we understand that to be true according to Scripture. We understand that the, the trotted down or trampling of Jerusalem means to at least some degree that there will, the Jerusalem will be under control of a Gentile population. You say, well, the Jewish people live in Jerusalem today. That is true, but do they own all of it? Absolutely not. There's the, the, the Holy Mount is still not even under their control uh, where the Dome of the Rock is now. And so we understand that, that those criteria. Jewish people suffering death, obviously that's happening. Jewish people uh, being enslaved, obviously that's happening. Jewish people suffering persecution, obviously that's happening. But Jerusalem being under Gentile control, that's happening as well. So that gives us the signs that we're currently still in this age that Jesus spoke about in Luke 21. Now, that gives us a little bit of the information, but there's another book in Scripture that is key to us understanding it. I already gave an allu uh, uh, alluded to it earlier. That's the book of Daniel. We spent our studies before coming into this in the book of Daniel. 
But for the sake of remembering and making sure that everyone is here, that is here is on the same page, I'm going to take this week and pro- probably next week as well and recap some of these things to make sure that we've got a good foundation going into it. Why? Because the book of Daniel has been called the book of Revelation of the Old Testament. The book of Daniel has been said to be the, an introduction uh, to the, the book of Revelation itself. And so, uh, in particular, uh, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 gives us the insight that we need moving forward into the rest of the book of Revelation. A, a study of the entire book is helpful, which many of us did that. Uh, and if you weren't here for that, you can go on Facebook, you can go on YouTube, you can find it on a podcast platform, and uh, go back and listen to those lessons as well. But tonight I'm going to endeavor to take what we learned in probably three or four messages and cram it into one. And so we're going to go through the entire chapter of chapter two and get this concept of what uh, is being laid out concerning this age that we know as the age of the Gentiles in which we live that will ultimately give way to the next age to come, which is where we find and read about the the things in chapter 4 through chapter 22, bringing that to fruition. So notice with me, uh, and for the sake of time, we won't read all of the verses right now. We'll read them as we go along. So notice with me, number one, as we consider the tonight, that we're moving from things that are to things that are after, as we read that in chapter 4 and verse number 1 of Revelation. Notice with me the dream that is found here in chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And uh, Brother John, I've got a couple of slides split up. So as you, if you can read along with me and just switch them in case people aren't, don't have their Bible open as well. But chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Uh, the, then the king commanded to call the magicians and astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in... In, uh, in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If ye will not make known unto me the dream, with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. But if ye show the dream, and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream, and the interpretation thereof. They answered again, and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation of it. The king answered and said, I know of, a, of certainty that ye would gain the time because ye see the thing is gone from me. But if ye will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you, for ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I will know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof. The Chaldeans answered, there, answered before for the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asketh such things of any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can uh, show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. I don't think I prayed yet. Let me pray. And uh, then we'll jump into things. Father, thank you for this, this evening. I ask that you'd bless our time together in your word. Guide us now through it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's pretty cut and dry. That You probably know the story, especially if you were here. We won't belabor the point. But a time comes when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. The dream is very um, 
it is very uh, 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 frightful to the king. He, uh, but he doesn't remember it enough to where he can recall everything that took place. He just knows that it scared the living di- daylights out of him. Now, this is interesting to note, though, because this is not just taking place at any time in history. It is taking place when Jerusalem had been taken captive by the country of Babylon, by the nation of Babylon. Now, up until this point, Babylon had went in and they had attacked two or three times prior to this, and they had taken a little land here or there. But this final time, they were able to go into Jerusalem, besiege Jerusalem. They were able to take everyone captive there and lay it in waste. While that took place, guess what happened to the Jewish people that lived there? Many of them died. Many of, uh, many of them were taken into captivity. They were definitely being persecuted. We understand that was part of the, uh, the qualifiers for being the age of the Gentiles. The other one being the fact that a Gentile nation be in control of Jerusalem. Up until this point, uh, when was it? About, um, let me see if I have it in my notes. I, th- I want to say 605. Uh, BC or somewhere around there. I don't. I don't have that in my notes tonight. But I, I want to believe. I believe that's where it was. But nevertheless, uh, up until that time, Jerusalem had never been conquered, and the people had never been per- persecuted to this extent from the time that they were a people, a nation. So here's here's what I'm saying, my friends. That with this, we begin to see there's a beginning of things here. There's a beginning that's unfolding. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But part of this contingency, part of this grouping that had been taken into Babylon captive from Jerusalem included this man named Daniel. Daniel, the Bible tells us that God gave him um, uh, wisdom that was 10 times better than the magicians in Babylon in chapter number 1. And then Daniel chapter 2 gives us how that wisdom is put on the display and uh, was able to be able to solve the riddle that was given by the king. In verse number one, it's in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's full reign as king that he dreams these dreams and he calls together all of his wise men and his magicians and these men that are known as Chaldeans and he asks them to interpret the dream. And they said, sure thing, sir, we'll do it for you. Just tell us the dream. He said, there's only one problem. I can't tell you the dream. So you got to figure out what the dream was and you've got to interpret it as well. So this, this gives this whole back and forth about uh, why uh, there's no way that anyone could ever do that. And so he just give me the dream and we'll interpret it. And the king says, no, you're going to have to get the, figure out the dream yourself and interpret it because if not, I know that you're lying uh, and, and you're not really as wise as you say you are. And, and honestly, if you can't do this, then you're in big trouble. And so predictably, though, the counselors, they, they object the whole, t- whole way, but they can't figure out the dream. There's just no way for them to understand what's taking place. And so we see, number one, the dream. Secondly, number two tonight, notice the decree in verses 12 through 30. And for the sake of time, we won't read all of this, but we've seen part of it already in the first few verses that we read. But he says in verse 12, For this cause the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Now listen, this is important uh, because uh, the wise men of Babylon would have included Daniel and some of his friends as well. Because Daniel, as he's brought in, he was so youthful and he had talent and, and he had his own uh, wits about him. But then in chapter one, as I already mentioned, it's proven that his wisdom is 10 times greater than that of the people of Babylon. So he's going through this training period. 
He's going through this training time to be part of the king's counselors. And because he's going through it and he's just finishing up, he's on the list of people that are about to be beheaded as well. So now all all these people are going crazy. The word's going out that, hey, because this can't be figured out and because this, uh, the, uh, the uh, dream can't be told and interpretation given, uh, he, the king's wroth and he, he's, he's angry. He's going to kill every single one of y'all and uh, you need to get your affairs in order because this is your last day. And da- uh, Daniel hears this word and he's like, what's going on? Why is this taking place? Well, the, one of the guards, the, the captain of the guards tells D- Daniel what's all taking place and Daniel pleads to have an audience with the king. We find that all that takes place and Daniel prays and God gives him insight and wisdom. And that's where we come to verses 31 through 45 or 49, actually. And we find the description that is given. I will read all of these, Brother John, if you want to go ahead and follow along with me in Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse number 31 with the description. Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image, this great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee. The form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet a part of iron, a part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and, and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors." And the wind carried them away, uh, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Notice he goes on to interpret now in verse number 36. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beast of the fields... And the fowls of the heaven uh, hath he given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces, and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all, all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay, part of iron, uh, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with the miry clay." As the toes of the feet were part of iron, part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to the other, one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it break in the pieces, the iron, the brass, and the clay, uh, and the silver, and the gold, and uh, the great God hath made known, I'm sorry, uh, made known to the king uh, what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. 
Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king... And, his, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the providence of, da- of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So first we find here that um, the, the obvious thing is this, that this dream that is being described here, it uh, concerns a statue, and this statue is the, is, has divisions or parts that are seemingly quite strange. So give me that first one with the statue there, Brother John, if you wouldn't mind. And uh, so here's an artist's rendition of that statue, if you may, with gold and silver and brass and, and iron and such. And, and we find that as we look at Daniel's interpretation, he gives the meaning of the first part of that statue. He clearly states that King Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, that his kingdom or Babylon is the beginning of this age. So as we said, Ages are a long period of time, but they have a finite, peri- uh, finite length to them. They will come to an end. They have a beginning, they have a length of time, and they will have an ending. We are currently in an age that will, will come to an end one day. The events in chapter 4 through chapter 22 of the book of Revelation details the last final years of the age that we are in right now before the age that will come next takes place, and it even describes what that age will be. But in order to get a proper understanding of it, it's good for us to have an understanding of how this age that we're in came to be. Jesus said that it was the age or the time of the Gentiles. The qualifications for that age is that the Jewish people are killed, they are taken captive, they are persecuted. While all that is taking place at the same time that the capital of Israel or Jerusalem, the holy city, is under, uh, is under Gentile rule. Beginning with this time, this kingdom, kingdom of Babylon, that has been true for Israel and has been true ever since. So this is the beginning. Babylon is the beginning of this age that we're currently in, the age of the Gentiles, and we're currently still in it. But nevertheless, we find that the power that Nebuchadnezzar has is, is not only displayed by what Jesus said, but look at the map of the Babylonian empire and all that it possessed. And even Jeremiah confirms these words as well. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel. In Jeremiah 27 verses 5 through 7, he said, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are upon the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm and have given it unto whom it seemed met, uh, meet unto me. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It seems odd that God would do that. But God said, I've created everything. And everything that I've created on the earth, I've given it into Nebuchadnezzar's power. And Daniel said that, that you, King Nebuchadnezzar, are a king of kings. And everything in this world, everywhere that man lives, you're in control. Let's be honest. Had Nebuchadnezzar traveled the entire, all square, every square inch of the globe? No. But had he done so, guess what? He would have been in charge of it because God had said so. That just goes to show us that God's power 
doesn't have to be doesn't have to be active in our life for it to not for it to be true. His power, he said, you could have it all. I'm choosing to allow you to have reign over my creation, earthly speaking. And even though Nebuchadnezzar didn't take full advantage of it, it was there for his taking. Let's just simply state this tonight, that, hey, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth, Jesus said. And because of that, we have the power to go. That power is there whether or not we take advantage of it or not. That's all I'm saying about that right tonight. But notice that uh, Daniel continues his interpretation, and he tells that Nebuchadnezzar that there will be another kingdom that will arise. Listen, up until this point, I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar's like, I love this dream. I was so scared at first, but it's telling me that I'm kind of the hot dog. I'm, I'm the head honcho. I've got everything under control. Until Daniel came in verse number 39 and said, there's going to be another kingdom that follows you. And so we've we got to understand that this statue, that this dream is laying out a timeline, a timeline that began with the beginning of the age of the Gentiles and a timeline that has four kingdoms involved in it specifically. The first kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. Notice though in verse number 39, he goes through the second and third rather quickly because they're not important. What's important is the beginning and the ending before the new age arrives. But we do understand there will be a second and third. Historically, we can go back and we can see that the second kingdom, of course, uh, after that, Brother John, if you give me the next slide there, please. Um, is the, uh, oh, I'm, I'm skipping ahead. Here's the criteria for Daniel's kingdoms, of course, as well. Uh, it has to be a Gentile kingdom. It has to be the dominant power of its day. It would need to defeat its predecessor, and it would need to control or trample or trod in Jerusalem. And so go ahead and give me that next one now, Brother John. And uh, the next one, the follow would be that of the Medes and the Persians. Now, interestingly enough, the, he doesn't give us a whole lot of information. There's other places in Daniel, which we'll talk about next week, that gives us a little more. But give me the next slide that gives us that picture again. The, although the scripture doesn't specifically state it this way, a lot of people, when they draw the statue, they draw the statue with his arms crossed, as signif- almost signifying the, 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 the nations or the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, how they... Technically, we're two, but they work together as one. And, and so he also says that this, this kingdom that will follow will be inferior to that of the kingdom of Babylon. Well, we see that in the decreasing of the wealth or the, the prominence of the metals from gold to silver. But we also know this is true between, from Babylon to the Medes and Persians because King Nebuchadnezzar could, could make a decree, he could make a ruling, and that was final until he decided to change his mind. And then if he changed his mind, he could wipe it all out. But the ruling of the, the Medes and the Persians, if a previous king made a ruling, a new king could not uh, up and, 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 uh, and, and unend that ruling. So we see that they were powerful enough, yes, to overthrow Babylon, but they were inferior to the power that... King Nebuchadnezzar had as well. There's a third one as well, and uh, that third um, uh, kingdom uh, then is that of the Greek Empire. And you notice if you've seen the maps that they kind of increase in landmass and what they're having. And so their their reach is increasing, their power is increasing, but the way they rule is actually decreasing. And uh, this Greek Empire, of course, is that third segment, Brother John, and and uh, that of of, uh, of bronze as you find there as well. 
Now, we find that it comes to a final, and I know I'm going really quickly through this, but the final kingdom features the least valuable and the most brittle materials, uh, which is reflected in the tendency that the Scripture says that they break apart and they're crushed into pieces, as we read in verses 40 through 43. Well, many would, would of course, uh, say, what brought an end to the Greek Empire? Of course, it was the Roman Empire. And then, of course, it would transform into something that was known as the Holy Roman Empire as well. And the mass of the land that was controlled just continued to grow and grow and grow. And some people might ask the question, well, when did the Roman Empire come to an end? Well, in a word, it didn't. Not in the way that the other ones did. In fact, the Holy Roman Empire, didn't, it, it didn't officially cease to exist until 1806. And so in the way that the other uh, kingdoms came to an end, they rose the power and completely broke apart and dis- were dis- dismantled. But with the way that the Roman Empire came in, they came in with power, but throughout their time, it's kind of morphed and molded. As the last part of this, of this statue said, it's more brittle and therefore it what? Breaks to pieces. And then it tries to get together, but it doesn't stick together, does it? Because the clay and, and the iron doesn't stick together. Certainly the Roman Empire began this fourth period, but the period extends beyond the Roman Empire itself. In later centuries, the kingdom would still be operating, but different pieces and different unions were at work. So we have to come to an understanding of this fourth kingdom in a way that the statue represents. It's a single entity consisting of pieces. And so instead of saying it's Rome or the Roman Catholic Church or whatever, we're saying it's an imperialistic democratic alliance that is still taking place today. Now, it's been going on for roughly 2,000 years now. And while Daniel doesn't give us a whole lot of information about this in chapter 2, he does in chapter 7, which we'll relate next week. But the final and last piece of the puzzle is this stone that falls from the sky, the Scripture says in verses 44 and 45. He says, and in, the days that the king shall, uh, uh, and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms. Let me ask you a question. Four kingdoms that make up this age of the Gentiles, beginning with Babylon, then the Medes and Persians, then the Greek, and then this imperialistic democratic alliances that we're currently in. But he says that this stone is going to come and crush all of them together. Wait a minute. I thought Babylon was somewhere around 600, 605 BC, and then Medes and Persians after that, and Babylon's no longer around, and then the Greeks after that, and the Medes and Persians no longer around, and then the, Rome, uh, uh, the uh, Roman Empire after that, and therefore the Greeks are no longer around, and we're still in this conglomerate of a, an imperial democratic alliance and such. So how is he going to crush them all at the same time? It's to be understood that when Jesus comes, or when this rock comes, it's coming to bring an end to the age as a whole. You following me tonight? And so we've, I've already gave you the insight to that, that this is Jesus. We know that to be true because it's a stone that comes, and it's not to be hewn out or cut out by man's hands. That's important because in Deuteronomy in chapter 27, verses 5 through 6, when God gave the law or instruction about how they were to create an altar, 
He, he told them this specifically, said, And there shalt, there shalt thou build an altar unto the Lord thy God, an altar of stones. Thou shalt not lift up any iron tool upon them. Thou shalt build an altar of the Lord thy God of whole stones, and thou shalt offer burnt offerings thereupon unto the Lord thy God. He said, when you make an altar, I don't want you to take bricks that you've put together yourself. I don't want you to take stones that you've chiseled out and made pretty so that it's all flat and that it's all symmetrical and such. I want you to take stones that have not been hewn out by human hands and put them together and bring your sacrifices. What he's saying is, I don't want you to think that you have any work in the matter of your atonement. And Jesus came, the sacrifice once for all, to bring atonement to all mankind. And the fact that he said this stone falls from heaven, a stone that was not cut out by human hands, is a representation of how God alone brings that atonement. And it's through who? His son, Jesus Christ. So this stone evidently is picturesque, picturesque of, of, uh, of, of Jesus himself. And he comes and he brings an end to this age. And so when did this age that we're currently in start? It began when the, the Jews were uh, persecuted and killed and enslaved and, and when their, their capital city, Jerusalem, was taken and, uh, and put under Gentile rule. When did that begin? It began with the, the nation of Babylon, and it's been taking place ever since. And God gave Daniel a vision of how this age would go. It would include four kingdoms. Three of the four have already come and gone. We're currently in the fourth. So again, as we've looked at the church age, and we're in the last part of the church age, as we look at the age of, that we're in, this Gentile age, we're in the last part of it as well. We're seeing that we're getting closer and closer to these events that will unfold in chapter 4 through chapter 22 of Revelation. And an understanding of all of this gives us a better appreciation of all that we are going to come to learn in those next few weeks throughout those chapters as well. In fact, we're going to come back and reference what we learned today and, and next week so much during the next several weeks as we go through chapter 4 and chapter 22 that it is imperative that we don't just put this as a side and say, well, it's a, that's an interesting tidbit. I want to get to the good stuff. This has to be understood before the good stuff even becomes good. And so give me the last slide, Brother John. Here's the, here, here we see. The stone is Christ. The, the feet is the end of that age. What happens when that stone hits the end of the age and wipes it all out? He said, a mountain arises. Notice that in uh, verse number 35. Um, he says, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then notice he gives the interpretation of what that means. He says in verse number 44, it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. What shall? This kingdom that is set up. So when, when this age comes to an end, what new age begins? Well, it begins with a brand new kingdom. A brand new kingdom that will never be destroyed. A brand new kingdom that will never be given off to anyone else, he said there in verse number 44 and 45. A brand new kingdom that if it's not a Gentile kingdom because the age of the Gentiles has come to a close, it has to be a what kind of a kingdom then? A Jewish kingdom by, by just pure logic and flowing because anything that's a Gentile is not Jewish. So therefore, if it's not a Gentile kingdom, it's going to be a Jewish one. Who's the one that's coming to set this up? Jesus is. It's going to last forever. So what, is, what, is the, what begins when this age ends? 
the millennial kingdom begins. And that's what the events of chapter 4 through 22 give us insight into how that's going to come to pass and how that's going to come to fruition. So by understanding how we got to where we're at today, it gives us a better appreciation for how that will come to be in the future. So give us a little insight there. We'll go over a few more next week, but let's pray before we take prayer requests. Our Father, we thank you for this evening. And Lord, I know it was a rush and, and uh, a lot of things that we've covered. Many of these things, many here tonight had heard before as we went through the book of Daniel many months ago. But God, I ask now that uh, for those who had heard this, that it would just serve as a remembrance and uh, to help uh, set the stage and to lay the foundation as we continue to uh, move through the book of Revelation here in the future. For anyone here tonight that was not here when we studied that, Lord, uh, let the brief explanation that was given this evening uh, sink in and take root, uh, that they might be able to have that solid foundation as well. We encourage any others that might not uh, quite grasp it yet to go back and maybe re-listen to tonight or go back to the previous lessons as well and, and uh, listen to them over again, that we might get this foundation as we move forward. But God, we understand and know that most importantly that no knowledge, no foundation, no insight is, uh, is, is worth anything except your spirit begin to guide us. And Lord, I ask now that you just continue to guide us and move amongst us as we uh, strive to interpret and to study your word. We praise you and thank you for your goodness. Hear our request now tonight. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have-